As I shared with you all before I went on vacation, and I think I addressed this a little bit more on Wednesday night, this is one of the toughest areas of biblical teaching that I've come across. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because it absolutely goes head to head with everything our culture teaches. And even with the common attitude, this may shock you, I'll show you why in a few minutes, but even with the common attitude in the church. What Paul writes here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, led by God, truly conflicts with everything that our culture seems to be about these days. And I'm like anyone else. I come to these things, I approach these things, and I think, oh boy. Okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to approach this and talk about this? Uh, The very simple way is we're just going to. Because we don't skirt Scripture. We don't dance around the tough stuff. I will tell you ahead of time, and I will warn those who are here second service, that there may be things here that make you uncomfortable. Perhaps because of some past or even current behavior in your life. Maybe you're fine in this area. Please don't shout out amen. But if this is of difficulty for you or has been or you're confused about these things, I invite you simply to hear the straight truth of Scripture. To weigh these things against God's Word and to listen for His grace because it's here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's begin in verse... Oh, let's begin in verse 9. Why not get a running start? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That sentence right there makes the rest of the chapter palatable no matter what your history has been. But we read on. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Or do you not know that your bodies, and He is talking about the physical body here, gang, don't miss that. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Or as simply says, just is one body. For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Father, may we glorify you this morning, even in our hearts, in our minds, and yes, Lord, in our bodies. May we be a people who seek not only to understand the truth of your word, but to live by it, to be changed by it, to be altered. I do pray, Father, that any of the sins or or behaviors of the past that that haunt us, that that guilt trip us, that, that sometimes we carry like so much baggage, Lord, by your grace, your mercy, and the blood of Jesus, would you just take it away? So that like Paul, we can say, we're not under law, but under grace. And help us learn then what it truly means to live this way and to maintain an attitude that is in keeping with your righteousness. We ask your Spirit to to, to teach us now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians 6, we arrive at what I consider to be the most intimate and important call to sexual purity in the Bible. And the key word is a phrase, actually it's a two-word phrase from verse 18, and it is flee immorality. Flee immorality. I call it the freedom of flight. Now, 1,700 years before this admonition was given, so 3,700 years ago, we were given a most explicit example through a young man named Joseph. Listen to his story. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Remember, he had been sold by his own brothers who had taken him down there, and the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome. In form and in appearance, not unlike your pastor. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not there. Verse 7, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Well, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled. And he went outside. The freedom of flight. Joseph fled, and in so doing, he set the standard for every temptation of a sexual nature for all of history. Flee immorality. It's interesting, my kids asked me about this yesterday. I asked me the definition of immorality. Dad, what does immorality mean? And and someone else in the group where we were sitting said, oh, that just means sin. No, it doesn't. No, immorality is not the generic word for doing wrong stuff. Immorality in the Bible, every single time you see it in the New Testament, the word is pornea, which means sexual immorality. It is specific immorality. It is a specific wrong. It is sexual behavior. It is sexual sin, which is, understand this, any sex outside of a biblical, godly marriage. Any sex. That is before marriage. That is during marriage, but with someone other than your spouse. That is after marriage in an unmarried state. That is homosexuality. Any sex outside of marriage is pornea as far as the Bible is concerned. Is sexual immorality. Now, I read a statistic the other day that... Well, it didn't surprise me, but it was shocking nonetheless. It stated that the millennial generation, those born 1982 to 1999, roughly, is the most sexually tolerant generation in the history of America. At least in terms of lifestyle. However, though it's the most sexually tolerant generation, it is not the most sexually active generation. Which I found interesting. According to the study, millennials will only average 8.62 sexual partners in a lifetime. Only? I'll tell you, I get it. I'm half a century old, so I understand that, that I was a teenager a while ago. But more than one when I was a kid was considered loose. And the average millennial will have 8.62... I don't know who the .62 are, that's kind of weird. But 8.62 partners across a lifetime. Now, baby boomers, their parents, and in between generation Xers will average 11.68 partners in a lifetime. 8 to 11 partners in a lifetime. My friends, please understand, God's most liberating standard is one. One. One man for one woman in one biblical marriage. Now that's God's design. He's designed a lot of things for us that we have completely messed up. One man for one woman, however, that's the plan. That's the design. Well, what about forgiveness? What about restoration? Isn't there grace if we've sinned in this area? Absolutely. But there's also truth. And because I think so many baby boomers and Gen Xers have messed up in this area, when the millennials come along, we have not taught them the truth. Because of our own sin. Because of our own failures. We've kept quiet about it because, boy, we we can't impose upon them, but we ourselves failed in. And I tell you, what parent doesn't impose upon their children things that they have failed in? You better... 
There are all kinds of things that as I grew up that I did miserably wrong that I expect better out of my kids because I don't want them to have the kind of fallout that I've had in my life, right? So we must talk about these things. And the bottom line is this. Sexual sin is not freedom. It's not freedom. The free love of the 60s was a lie. Friends with benefits is not beneficial. Hooking up is breaking down. And one of the most surprising places this is completely ignored is in the church. Here's another couple of statistics for you. According to the 2014 State of Dating in America report, published by ChristianMingle and JDate.com, and based on a survey of 2,600 singles ages 18 to 51, 61% of Christians say they would have sex before marriage. 56% said it's appropriate to move in with someone after dating between six months and two years. That is mind-boggling to me. According to a 2016 Pew Research study, today, 55% of Americans, this doesn't surprise me, support same-sex marriage. 37% oppose it. But do you know that's the exact opposite of what it was in 2001? In that short a time, it's completely flipped. It used to be that 57% of Americans oppose same-sex marriage, while 35% or so were for it. And now it's the opposite. Oh, we'll see, culture changes, so we've got to change with culture. Wrong. Culture changes, but the Word of God remains the same. It never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So regardless of the opinions and attitudes and mores of culture, God's Word is consistent and unchanging. But get this. According to the 2016 Pew Research study, 58% of Catholics now support same-sex marriage. Well, those Catholics. What do they know? Apparently a little more than mainline Protestants because among mainline Protestants, 64% support same-sex marriage. Now you might quietly shrug some of this off and say, big deal. But from a purely biblical perspective, these believers, the 58%, the 64%, the supporters of same-sex marriage, those who believe that moving in together before marriage is not a big deal, that sex outside of marriage is not a big deal, that they plan to have sex before they're married, all of these are either deceived, uninformed, or living in rebellion. Not my word, but according to what Scripture teaches us. Again, back in verse 9, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we went through that list on Wednesday night. You might want to go back and listen if you weren't here. As we went through and we talked about the specific definition of every single one of those words and what it actually meant in Greek culture. And there's no getting around it, my friends. It is listed out very clearly. And on this list, Paul writes, if you are among these fornicators, sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, idolaters, which was sexually related because they're in Corinth, of course, under the Acro-Corinthus, that, that great mountain, 
and the temple of Aphrodite, there was all kinds of idolatrous sex going on. Idolatry and sex were completely connected. Adulterers. Again, sex outside of that of the marital union that is ordained by God. Effeminate. We have this huge drive for transgender rights in our country. Effeminate means that. It means acting or dressing in a way that is in conflict with your biological nature. That's what the word means. Homosexuals. It is, by the way, that word homosexual is not pornea. It's not just the word sexual immorality that someone assumed was homosexual. It is the word, the Greek word, specifically for a man lying with a man. There's no way to second guess what that means if we're just reading Scripture. And so all these words are clear. But today's Christian would say, well, yeah, but but what about grace? What about freedom? Hey, verse 11, such were some of you. My favorite few words in the Bible, perhaps, such were some of you. I was that, but I'm not anymore. Well, I was born this way. Then be born again. Such were some of you. But Paul says, you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, you were set free from that prison. The freedom of flight today means that because of grace, because I have set free, I can flee sexual immorality. There is a strength in me now, a freedom to run from the things that would drag me down from the things of the flesh. And yet what I see is a church, at least the majority, a church of people running to it instead of fleeing from it. Verse 12. Now this is interesting. I want you to think through a few of these things with me. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Wow. From this one-time pharisaical lawkeeper, for Paul to say, all things are lawful. All things. Now, you might jot this down in your Bibles, the Greek phrase, the Greek word there for all things. It means all things. (laughs) So what Paul is saying, I can do anything I want. All things are lawful for me. You get that far and you go, okay, cool. And then he says, but not all things are profitable. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I could go down to the cannabis store if I wanted to and buy some edibles. I could. But it's not profitable for me. He says, all things are lawful for me. But I will not be mastered by anything. This remarkable broad stroke comes into understanding. It's as if Paul's saying, look, when dad owns the store, you can go dip your hand into the candy jar anytime you want. But it's not necessarily going to be profitable. It's not necessarily going to be healthy for you. Please get this, because I've come a long way in my understanding. I was probably far more like the Pharisee Paul when I was growing up. I'm starting to understand now why he was called the Apostle of Grace. But technically speaking, because I am saved by grace and not under law, I am more free to do anything than anyone who is under law or under sin. 
I am more free because of the grace of God to do anything in this life than anybody else. I am absolutely liberated. I'm liberated from the law of Moses. I am liberated from the law of conscience and all the guilt that comes with it. But this is where Christians tend to take license as children of the house. Please understand, as I just said, Paul, the Apostle of Grace, no one, with the exception of Jesus Himself, spoke grace more fluently and freedom more fluently than Paul did. It got him in trouble with his own people who didn't understand this concept of grace. And yet he said, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. So that no man can boast. It's a gift of God. He's the one who wrote Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Jesus Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You are called to freedom, Galatians 5.13. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And to any Christian who thinks that following Jesus is or should be restrictive, you have missed the glorious freedom of grace. I am free. Grace is not license to sin. Grace is liberty from sin. Liberty. And here's the thing. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. That word mastered means overpowered by or under the authority of anything other than Jesus Christ. There's my authority. He's my master. He's the Lord. He's the only one that I am under. Nothing else has power over me. Nothing else bears authority in my life but Jesus Himself. Will you be mastered by someone or something other than Jesus? Would you allow yourself, be it your body, your mind, or your spirit, to be under another authority than that of Jesus Christ? To be free in Christ is to be free from sin, not to sin. Now, I'm going to say something that I know runs counter to another generic Christian understanding related to sin. And that is this. Not all sin is the same. Not all sin is the same. Granted, all sin is bad. All sin is wrong. All sin is condemnable. Because all sin separates us from a perfect God. In light of a perfect God, the tiniest of sins is a dark spot on the soul. But that doesn't make all sin exactly the same, especially in terms of impact and fallout. Parents, would you rather catch your child stealing a cookie or watching internet pornography? Not all sin is the same. Wives, would you rather your husband lose his temper and shout at you in anger or commit adultery? Not all sin is the same. The impact is felt differently. The weight of it, again, the fallout of it, is different from sin to sin depending on the sin. And dear family, what Paul is about to prove to us is that sexual sin, sexual immorality, is unique among all sin. It is different. 
than all other sin. We have to point that out. I said it on Wednesday. But the problem is that if we think it's the same, uh, telling a little lie and sexual immorality, if we put it on the same playing field, then the little lie that's not a big deal means that the sexual immorality is not really that big a deal either. And yet it is. We went through this season, my daughter Hannah, who's about to have her own child, and I'm so excited that she's going to be able to experience that for herself. (laughs) We went through a season when she was, oh, sixth grade, I mean, almost going into seventh grade, where just little lies, and she would test me with little lies, and they were always stupid things, like whether or not she brushed her teeth. Did you brush your teeth? Now, all I would have to do is wait six months, and I could tell. (laughs) Things are growing, and... But I would say, did you brush your teeth? Yes. And I always knew. Did you brush your teeth? Yes. And she would look away. All right, breath test. Brush your teeth right now. (laughs) Not a big deal. Except that she was lying. And we had all these, we kept having conversations about truth. Speak truth. And if you're going to speak lies and little things, it's going to get bigger. And so this was kind of our conflict for a while. I'll tell you what, I would much rather have my daughter lie to me about brushing her teeth than find out that she had been sleeping with her boyfriend. Because the fallout is completely different. Now Paul's going to explain this and he is going to give what I believe are several airtight, rock-solid arguments for fleeing sexual immorality rather than running to and embracing it. Argument number one, if you're taking notes. The belly versus the body. The belly versus the body. The Christians of Corinth had a a proverb, and it's apparent from Paul's letter here. And the proverb went like this. The belly is for food, and food is for the belly. In fact, we see Paul repeat that. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food there in verse 13. But what they meant by this proverb, the belly is for food and food is for the belly, is that all bodily appetites are the same. My hunger for a Five Guys burger and my sexual appetite are all the same because it's all just the flesh, it's all the body. Whether it's hunger and thirst or breathing or what my flesh desires in a sexual way, it's of no consequence, it's no big deal, because the body is for food and food is for the body, and the bodily appetites have nothing to do with the spirit. And it's the same exact mentality that our culture has when they call it casual sex. It's no different, people would say, really. Casual sex really no different than one too many burgers and an extra shake of five guys. Paul reshapes the slogan in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for pornea, sexual immorality. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, and the Lord is Jesus. Be clear about that, because in the next verse, Paul says God raised the Lord up. So the Lord he is referring to is the aspect of God, Jesus Christ Himself. The body is for Jesus and Jesus for the body. The body is not for sexual immorality. Another way to say it is the body is not for immorality. The body is for immortality. What? Oh, this is a big deal. Our Lord Jesus is the example of this. You see, He was raised back to life in full 
bodily resurrection. He was not a spirit, not a ghost. He was the first to resurrect eternally from the dead. Paul later will call him the first fruits of resurrection. What does that mean? Look at Jesus in his resurrection. The first to resurrect, and he was flesh and bone and spirit and soul. He was his complete whole self as he had been before, but now resurrected and glorified eternally. Now this physical body could do things that had not been seen before. As I've told you before, after the resurrection, just appearing in a room where the door was locked. How cool is that? (laughs) But still in body, verse 14, Paul says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but also will raise us up through His power. What are you getting at, Paul? Luke 24, 37, They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands? See my feet? That it is I myself touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. My friends, all the food and even the belly really is of no consequence. But the body is made for immortality. Speaking of food in the belly, just a little side note. Did you know that the New Testament does not even address gluttony once? It's got to be in here. It's got to be on the list of sins. Hey, I painstakingly looked it up. I have a vested interest in this concept. Three Proverbs in the Bible encourage against gluttony. But in the New Testament, it is not listed among all the many lists that describe and and delineate sin. What the Bible says about gluttony, overeating specifically, is that, you know, pretty much any excess can be problematic. So don't live in excess, whether it be food or alcohol or or, or whatever. But listen, (laughs) this made me so happy. The amount of Twinkies I consume will not affect God's ability to raise me up. He's a big God. He is a strong Father. And the last I checked, there was no weight requirement for resurrection or the rapture. Hallelujah! And hostess to you. 1 Corinthians 15.41, Paul said, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection from the dead. Now get this. He says it's sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We read that and with our religious mindset we think a spiritual body means a ghost. No. Was Jesus a ghost in His resurrection? No, He wasn't. As a matter of fact, at one point there, uh, Luke tells us that he asked him, do you have a piece of fish? Give me some fish. And he ate fish in front of them. Does a ghost eat fish? Does a ghost say, touch me? Can a ghost say, look at my wounds and, and feel me? It's me. I'm here. 
And Jesus is the example of being sown a natural body, raised a spiritual, actual body. And Paul says if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Philippians 3.21. Paul says Jesus Himself will transform the body. And the word there is soma. It's a very common Greek word meaning the physical body. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. In other words, my body will be like His body. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So, how does that affect your view of sexual immorality? Bodily immortality in light of sexual immorality. What that tells me and what Paul is saying to us is the body does matter. What I do to the body, how I care for the body, it does matter. Soma, the body is part of who I am as my soul and as my spirit. I am triune in nature like God is spirit, soul, and body. And it's not just my spirit that will be raptured. It is not just my spirit that will be resurrected. This is so absolutely clear that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which speaks of the rapture of the church, remember what Paul says? The dead in Christ will rise first. And that word dead is nekros, which means the corpses. Now, what he said right before that is God will be, bring with Him the spirits of those who have died. And then the dead will rise. The corpses, the physical bodies from the grave will rise, be united with spirit, glorified. And those who have died in Christ, who right now their spirit is with Him, their body will be glorified as well. And they will be whole, body, mind, and spirit, eternally glorified. That is bigger than I ever used to think it was. And I can tell you with confidence I'm not stepping outside of the pages of Scripture to explain that. That's where Paul is going with this. And by the way, Jewish thought completely aligns with that. The Jews rightly believed that redemption was for the whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Why do you think Jesus said things like, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, if the body doesn't count for anything, who cares? It does matter. The body matters. Paul even said in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I know some of you are saying, oh great, so you mean I'm going to be stuck with this? i, I got to wear this on into eternity? Hey, it's going to be glorious. You are going to be glorious. Jesus is not into body shaming, but He is into body claiming. And He claims your body as much as He claims your soul and your spirit when you are born again. He wants you all. This body is not destined for destruction, but for resurrection. And of course, that's proven in the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul says. So so the belly, the food, whatever. But the body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And so my question to you, beginning this morning, is what kind of body do you want to present to Jesus? Do you want to present Him one holy? 
sanctified, cleansed and washed? Or do you want to present Him a body straight out of the mud? What bride shows up at her wedding with her dress all stained, ketchup and mustard? I was just at five guys. (laughs) Whatever. I do. (laughs) Who would do that? We need to view the body as holy to the Lord. Now, second argument Paul is going to give, belonging versus becoming. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That is, belong to Him. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now, the translators use the word prostitute, but the word there is pornea again. Or it's, it's a, a derivative of pornea, uh, sexual. So you could say, am I going to take the members of Christ and join them to the sexually immoral? Now, he, they translated prostitutes because there in Corinth, again, temple prostitution was huge, and members of the church were going out to the temple prostitutes saying, well, I can still do that, it's just my body. I've given him my spirit, and he's going to raise me up, and that's all good. But my body doesn't matter, so I can still go see Bertha. I love that old gal. You know what I mean? So there's this kind of twisted thing. And he says, so really? So that's what you're going to do? You're going to take this body that you have given to the Lord that is now a member of Christ, and you're going to go out to see that prostitute? Don't you understand when you do that, you're taking Jesus with you? My friends, Jesus is not absent from the bedroom which is wonderful in marriage but it's messed up in any other place he uses this word body again soma he'll use that word body six times in this passage alone ten times in the letter and if you were born again as I said you didn't just give him soul and spirit you gave him authority over the body it belongs to Jesus and you cannot separate it out But he goes on and he says, May it never be, that is, I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a sexually immoral one, to a prostitute, is one body with her? Why is that, Paul? Because God said the two shall become one flesh. And sex is how it happens. You become one flesh. You belong to Christ spiritually, but you become one with the one to whom you give yourself physically. He says the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. Now, consider this. In a godly marriage, the union is sanctified, is holy. But in sexual immorality, the union that you have with God becomes defiled. Because now you have taken Him, the members of Christ, and made them members of sexual immorality. How many of you would be shocked beyond belief to discover that Jesus was sleeping around during His ministry? You can't even imagine it. Wouldn't happen. So why do we do that to it? Why would anybody... Drag Jesus into that defiled bed. That's what Paul's talking about here. And it's serious business. That word members there, by the way, is a graphic word. 
It's, it's the Greek word melos, and it's a biological medical term meaning limb or body part. Limb or body part. Verse 15 again, do you not know that your bodies are limbs of Christ? Body parts of Jesus. Shall I take the body parts of Jesus and make them body parts with a sexually immoral one? That is a graphic illustration that if you join yourself to Jesus and then commit acts of sexual immorality, it's like joining Jesus Himself to that very sexual act. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. And we're right back to where we started, the freedom of flight. Paul repeats this admonition two more times in his letters. Once in this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 where he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That is, we all experience it. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, flee from idolatry. Now remember, we already talked about the fact that idolatry was connected to sexual immorality in Corinth very clearly. Flee it. Run from it. There is an escape route. There's always an escape route. You want to know what my escape route is in my marriage? To to maintain a marriage undefiled? I am never alone with a woman other than my wife. I even get uncomfortable when my mother-in-law comes over. Because it's like... (laughs) I mean, for completely different reasons, but... I am not alone with a woman other than my wife. I don't get in a car with a woman. I don't get in an elevator with a woman. I don't, I don't sit down and talk with a woman. I, even in public, ladies, I will not meet with you one-on-one. I don't do it. Why? Because you're such a perv? No. <laughs> because I am not going to even come close to taking a risk. I'm not going to allow myself to be in a position where there's any possibility that I might be deceived because I am deceivable. And I think that standard needs to be for every single one of us. Husbands, you should never be alone with a woman who is not your wife. Wives, do not ever be alone with a man who is not your husband. Well, man, I'd have to rethink the way I do business throughout the week. Yeah, probably a good idea. Because what we see now is proof of a sex-saturated culture and church. When 64% of mainline Protestants Protestants have zero issue with homosexual marriage, when such a huge number of millennials and Gen Xers and baby boomers all have no problem with it, we'll have multiple partners in a lifetime, it tells me we have got to shift our thinking as followers of Jesus in this area. The other time Paul says this is he says, flee from youthful lust. He says that to young Pastor Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee from youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If you're going to run, run away from sexual immorality and to the righteousness of Jesus. Let that be where your feet go. Now, here's the proof if you haven't gotten it yet, that sexual immorality is unlike any other sin. Verse 18. Flee immorality. 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Argument number three. Breaking down versus building up. Breaking down versus building up. Think about this. God designed sexual intimacy. Sex is not a bad thing. Okay? He designed sexual intimacy in a biblical marriage as one of many ways for a husband and wife to be built up. There is something that happens in that sexual union in the married state that strengthens the relationship. That's a good thing. It gets sweeter, it gets stronger over time. The relationship benefits for it. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Paul encourages a healthy sexual relationship in a godly marriage, saying the following, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Stop depriving each other. I learned very quickly early on in my marriage that is not a good verse for a husband to quote to his wife. (laughs) But it's there. And there is a reason God gave us that part of our marital relationship. And it is good and it is holy and it builds up a marriage. But listen, while sexual intimacy and godly marriage builds up, sexual immorality does the opposite. It breaks down. It breaks down. It tears at you. Little pieces of your spirit, little pieces of your soul, and yes, even your body, it just tears at you. A little at a time, and you lose yourself. Sexual sin is unique in that it breaks down the very being of a person, spirit, soul, and body, that God intends to redeem and build up and glorify. But sexual immorality, it tears down. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, a very important parallel verse. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Would you destroy yourself? If you would destroy yourself, go right ahead. Because that's what sexual immorality does. The Bible teaches such a completely, radically different concept than our culture does. A concept of sexuality that is different than the popular media and education, which is so messed up on the subject. You know, education in the classroom, our public schools, doesn't even address the heart. Doesn't address the fact that with multiple partners comes a breakdown of the heart. That if a young girl, 13, 14, 15 years old, gives herself sexually to another, to a boy, and then does it again, and again, and again, it's like tearing off bits of heart every single time. You're losing yourself. You're feeling less valued, less worthy. The, the young girl begins to think the only way she'll ever be valued is if she gives herself sexually to a boy. That's wrong. And it twists the very gift that God has given us. And... If you are right now, today, engaged in sexual sin, you are destroying yourself. You are losing yourself. 
Do you see how that's different than any other sin that's outside the body? This one attacks the body. It degrades the body. It corrupts the body. Again, the same body over which Jesus Christ would claim authority. Now after all of this, if if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, come on, how much longer do I have to listen to this rant before I can get out of here? Clearly this pastor's got uptight sexual values. Listen, if you still think it's casual sex, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 and said the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What does that mean? It means unable to anymore feel any guilt or shame over it. It means that sex has become so casual that it's no big deal. And even when you do, there's just no more remorse. It's just the way it is. And all those who are opposed, they've got issues. I would say, if you're thinking that way, your conscience has already begun to be seared. And listen to the very next thing. Note this that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. The hypocrisies of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron who forbid marriage. You know what the word forbid means in the Greek? It means to mutilate. Those with a seared conscience mutilate marriage. Tear it up. Shred it. Take it all the way to the Supreme Court and redefine it. Destroy it, whether it's their own marriage or their future marriage. That's what sexual immorality does. Do you see? Paul is not uptight. Paul is saying, I'm free to do anything, but this will kill me. This will destroy you, brothers and sisters. He loves the church at Corinth. Paul's not on some kind of legalistic rant here. He's telling them, here's the truth of what this behavior and this pattern and this lifestyle that you were involved in, such were some of you, but not anymore. You were washed, so don't live that way. And this is the truth, that sexual sin mutilates marriage. Now, what do I do? Great. What do I do if my body is already marred by sexual immorality? Recent? As recent as last night or past? a few years back. How do I deal with this? And and again, this is why churches don't talk about this. This is why people don't talk about it among Christians because we feel like we've got the marred past so we can't address the truth. Look, this is not Rick's word to you this morning. It's God's word. So what do I do? Here, Paul's final two arguments because here's where it begins to turn in our understanding. Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now that was used when I was a child to say you shouldn't smoke. Because your body's a temple, man. Would you light up the temple of God? Come on. You shouldn't drink because your body's a temple. That is completely out of context. 
When Paul writes, and he's speaking specifically, remember in a previous study a couple of weeks ago we talked about that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, all of us together. This is very specifically your body, individuals. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and the context is sex and sexual immorality. Who's Paul talking to again? He's talking. He is talking to the church. Specifically the church at Corinth. So when he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, all they'd have to do is read the letter and look over their shoulder at the temple of Aphrodite. And the picture was very clear. Your body is the temple. Argument number four, quickly, the body as a bayit. B-A-Y-I-T-H, bayit. I chose that specifically because the Hebrew word bayit is house, temple. It's the word that's used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures for the temple of the Lord. My friends, the body is the bayit. What was the temple of the Lord and housed the Holy Spirit of God back in the days of the first and second temple there in Israel now has been replaced by your body, by my body, which is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've got to get this. It's amazing. What did the temple of Solomon house? The glory of God. The glory of God. What did the enemies of Israel finally do to wipe them out? Burn down the temple. Tear down the temple. Devastate the temple. Babylon did it. Rome did it. They destroyed the very temple. And it's the same tactic that Satan has been using through all eternity, through all history, is to burn down the temple. Destroy the temple. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And here's the grace, because I believe this is a grace statement of Paul's. If your body, I love this, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is if you belong to Jesus, guess what? He's here. He's present. He's with you, man. He is with you, woman. And what that means is there is still the ability to turn and glorify God in the body. Look at the history of the temple in Israel. It was defiled multiple times. And then restored and sanctified and used again for the worship of God. If your body, like the temple of the Jews in Israel, has been defiled then turn to Jesus, be restored, and once again glorify God in your body. See, there's something else that the culture does not offer you when it comes to sexual immorality, and that is grace, and restoration, and forgiveness, and redemption. No, our culture judges harshly. Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Soma. I want my body redeemed as much as my soul, as much as my spirit. Flee sexual immorality. Paul and Joseph. You know, glorify God. By the way, do you know what Joseph said? Did you hear what he said when Potiphar's wife came on to him in that act of workplace sexual harassment? 
Genesis 39, verse 9, Joseph's response. How could I do this great evil and sin against who? God. He didn't say, how could I sin against Potiphar? How could I sin against the master of the house? No, he said, how could I sin against God? Why would he say that? Because God is in the body. Body of Joseph. Jesus was present. Yeah, about that. Uh, Rick, didn't Joseph end up in prison after he fled? (laughs) So much for your freedom of flight idea. So it would seem. So it would seem. But Genesis 39.21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. So that whatever was done there, he was responsible. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. It didn't matter if he was in Potiphar's house or in prison, God was with him. The Lord was with him. And understand that what the, the world sees as prison, God makes into freedom and liberty and prosperity. Oh, you're so restrictive. You're telling me that you're going to be married to this one woman your whole life and she's the only one that you're going to be with? It's like that scene out of City Slickers. Remember that old Billy Crystal movie? And they're having this argument about this very thing. And, and Billy Crystal saying he's remaining true to his wife and his friend, played by Bruno Kirby, is saying, okay, wait a minute, I don't get this. You're telling me all your life you get to eat from the Kellogg's variety pack of cereal. Apple Jacks, Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, Cheerios, whatever you want. And, and every day you can eat something different. And then all of a sudden, you have to pick just one, and you're stuck with that the rest of your life? My friend, sex is not cereal. I can't imagine eating one cereal the rest of my life. It would be limiting. Sex and marriage is not limiting. It is liberty. And there is something that happens over the long haul that is freeing and joyful and intimate in ways that you cannot understand. As a young married, you don't realize what it will be like in 30 years, 40 years. I know some say, well, I don't want to know what it'll be like. (laughs) You missed the point. The joining of hearts in that relationship, what the world calls prison, is not prison. It is freedom and liberty and prosperity when God is there. And by the way, you know the rest of the story. Joseph ultimately rises to second over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And guess what happened? Because he uh, fled immorality, he saved his family. Do you realize, and I say this especially to our younger people, if you flee immorality before you're married, you may very well be saving your entire family. Flee immorality like Joseph. Save your family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the greatest power the world has ever known dwelling in these temples. God's Spirit. And why? Verse 20, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, 
Glorify God in your body. If you are living a sexually immoral lifestyle, flee. Run from it. Realize that Paul is talking to the church at Corinth because they were having problems with this. And if they were beyond saving, he never would have written this in the letter. In fact, he would have just written them off. But he doesn't. Flee sexual immorality. If you're engaged in it, stop it. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery when all of her accusers left because they were no better than she was? What did He say? He said, I do not condemn you. And then He said, Go. And from now on, sin no more. Father, Your Word is is potent. And Your Word is true. And I ask two things for us this morning, both in this hour and the next. I ask, Lord, that You will confirm to us truly what is godly related to sex and what is not. I pray, Father, that we will walk out of here, regardless of our failures in the past, that we, to a, to a man, to a woman, would walk out of here and be able to express that yes, in terms of God's perfection, in terms of God's Word, that the only sex that is acceptable is that between a married man and woman. By the biblical definition. I pray that we'll have that understanding. And I also pray, Father, that we will walk out of here a people purified and determined from here on out to go our way and sin no more. In Jesus' name, Amen.